We solemnly swear we're up to no good. Hi, I'm Gary Roby. I'm Victoria Laguna. And we're the hosts of Harry Potter Minute, the fan podcast where we overanalyze the Harry Potter movies one magical minute at a time. Join us as we argue about whether or not McGonagall would meow at Dumbledore. She wouldn't. As we ponder just how much Harry's fortune is worth. Just $40. As we guess how much mileage one gets out of an Ollivander wand. 100,000 jinxes. As we detail the ins and outs of Hogwarts Castle. It's only a model. Join us Monday through Friday, only from DuelingGenre.com. Mischief Managed. Dueling Genre. and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Dorowski. And this week we're discussing Nimona from the webcomic Nimona by Noelle Stevenson. And to help us with this discussion, we are welcome, welcoming back former guest John Dorowski. Thank you. Welcome back. My brother, if anyone <laughs> hadn't caught on by the last name. Cue there. Let me just say that it's an honor to be here as we discuss one of Todd Mack's favorite types of characters, which longtime listeners will know. Is a shapeshifter. Yes, <laughs> a main character shapeshifter. But she's good. So if it's if a shapeshifter is good, it doesn't bother me nearly as much as it, if a shapeshifter is bad. You do remember that the very opening scene is her begging to be the sidekick of a supervillain. I know, but uh, she's. <laughs> well, we'll get to this. We'll get to this. Where the moral lines are. She's not nearly as creepy as um, well. Right now, I'm watching Agents of Shield, and there are there is identity sw- swapping going mm-hmm. on. Are there stealing. scrolls? Is it no? No, no scrolls are involved, but uh, there is an alternate reality, and there are uh, android uh, replicas. LMDs. LMDs. The life model Model decoys. decoys. Yes, and they terrify me (laughs) and fascinate me. By alternate timeline, is this like a Star Trek mirror universe? It's uh, like Fringe, yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. do they have mustaches, the bad guys? (laughs) Uh, No, no, they don't. Uh, but it's amazing, and I do love uh, a good shape-shifting story, and this is one of them. So, here we are. Before we get into our full discussion about Nimona, uh, in case you're interested, you should know that Nimona is a fantasy comic with a dash of sci-fi about a shapeshifter named Nimona, who wants to be a sidekick to a villain named Ballastair Blackheart. Which is a fantastic name. Really is. Uh, but perhaps the distinctions between heroism and villainy are a little wibbly-wobbly in this story, in this universe. <laughs> Do you think that's a fair, short summary? I uh, I think so, yeah. All right. So how did we come to this? Uh, John, my brother, was going to be in town. He said, hey, can I be a guest on the podcast? I said, absolutely. Standing invitation. Do you have a comic you'd recommend? He said, Nimona. And I read it. <laughs> <laughs> we were at our meetup. By the way, thank you to all of the, the listeners who showed up for the meetup the other day with the, uh, with the Phantom Podcast guys. It was a lot of fun. I was a little wary to do a public meetup because I assumed we would have no one show up but me, you, and producer Andrew. And then when we added the fandom guys, I thought, well, at least we'll get three, <laughs> three other guys. But we had we had some uh, some listeners show up, and yes, definitely appreciated seeing some listeners in real life. It was uh, it was really really fun. And while we were there, John came up to me and said, "Here is your reading assignment for this week." And I thought, okay, this looks uh, interesting. I think I read. A tiny blurb about Nimona on the NPR greatest, best, whatever. The one that we just novels. talked about was The one we just barely talked about, yeah. yeah. And we didn't know Nimona was going to be on the schedule when we went through that list. We can chalk one more off, you know, check yes. one more off that list of yeah. 100 great graphic novels. So I had heard of it before, and I had seen the cover, and, uh, and it was fun. I liked it. 
So I came to it uh, partly through a lot of the recommendations, things like NPR or the best of end of the year lists. We're talking about this a lot. Uh, but the real thing that caught my eye and made me say, hey, maybe I should read this is it was a finalist for the National Book Award. And yeah. which, that's, a, which... that's a high prestige. It says, <laughs> all right, there's probably something worthwhile in here. Yeah. And for uh, particularly for comic books to make uh, the finalists, there still remains some institutional yeah, <laughs> like so... pushing back. Uh, against March that. won it, and that's the first time it's any uh-huh. comic book has won. But it's pretty. Was American born Chinese nominated? Uh, it's pretty it? infrequent that one gets nominated. Mm-hmm. But those things like this also make a lot of library lists for best of end of the year. That's where you find a lot more graphic novels. Okay, so some trivia about Nimona Stevenson, Noah Stevenson, the uh, creator. She began posting pages of Nimona as a web comic in 2012. And Nimona also served as Stevenson's senior thesis project at the Maryland Institute College of Art. And the entirety of Nimona is available online as a webcomic. So if you enjoy this discussion or think it sounds interesting, you can just go find it online just by Googling Nimona. Uh, it would show up. Uh, but it is, has also been released as a graphic novel. And that was done in 2015 with the entire uh, story collected. And I know I've seen it at our library. If you have a good local library, there's a good chance they will have Nimona there. An animated adaptation, uh, film adaptation, is in the works, and that is scheduled to be released in 2020. And that is coming from the same studio that did the Peanuts comic adaptation. Interesting. A couple years ago. Blue Sky. Yeah, Blue Sky. And distributed through 20th Century Fox, I think. Uh, Stevenson also wrote an audiobook adaptation of this comic book, and that is available on audible.com. I've heard that it's very good. Yeah. I think Alana was saying that the audio version of this is really good. Okay. So... Well, for what it's worth, <laughs> might want to go give that a listen, listeners. I, I mean, it seems it seems strange to listen to an audio version of a graphic novel, but uh, but I've heard that it's good. Yeah, uh, as far as like how adaptations work, graphic novel to audio play is not the most common <laughs> that, I, that I'm aware of. There are a few. I know Marvel did a couple There's at one point. A company called Graphic Audio that they they just adapt comic books okay. to. Uh, audio and so I know Miss Marvel also has a really audio adaptation out there. Okay, I'm guessing that it's more of a like more of a production. No, like, I imagine it's multiple voices, full cast type, and, thing. and that you probably have to write in some narration that's not present in the comic book. I, what I would really love to listen to is an audio version of Magic Knight Ray Earth because <laughs> I would just be all over that. And if anybody wants to hire me to do the sound effects, to do the sound effects I would be more than happy to oblige. If uh, listeners want to dig back in our archi- archives, we did a manga called Magic Knight Ray Earth, and we left a sample of Todd just happily and giddily reading off the sound effects. <laughs> it's amazing. I think we didn't leave the whole thing in, because it was a good five minutes of Todd just reading the onomatopoeia poetic uh, phrases that were on the pages. All right, so Stevenson was nominated for uh, uh, several awards for Nimona, and also her subsequent project, Lumberjanes, has also been nominated and won several awards. Nimona was nominated for an Eisner, which, again, is kind of like the Oscars for comic books, and it was also a finalist for the 2015 National Book Award, as John mentioned. Hey, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening, and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would also like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. 
All right, listeners, we're about to jump into the long synopsis. So if this sounded interesting to you, you can pause now and go read it online. Uh, if you just want to find out what happens, here is John with our synopsis of Nimona. Quick caveat before I begin. This uh, series has been described as uh, subversive, irreverent, and deadpan. Almost none of which will come across in a summary, because it's a lot about the characters and how they uh, interact. So, for the dry summary, here we go. Nimona, a spunky teenager with shaved pink hair, except for her bangs and side locks, introduces herself to Lord Ballister Blackheart, the leading villain in the kingdom. After being impressed by Blackheart's mechanical arm, she claims to have been sent by the agency to be his new sidekick. Ballister doubts this and is about to send the young girl away when she declares, I'm not a kid, I'm a shark, thus revealing her shape-shifting powers. Impressed, Ballister welcomes her aboard. Nimona wants to bring a lot more carnage, chaos, and death to Ballister's vil villainy, but he refuses, explaining that there are rules. When Nimona complains that the point of being a villain is that you don't have to follow the rules, Blackheart tells her the story of how he lost his arm. He was once a hero in training at the Institution for Law Enforcement and Heroics, alongside his best friend, Sir Ambrosius Goldenloin. During a joust... <laughs> Sorry. We both lost it on that name. Ambrosius Goldenloin. <laughs> the names, all of the names in this story are, um, are amazing, but my goodness. Goldenloin. It's a little on the nose. <laughs> During a joust, Ballister unseated Goldenloin, who then used a rocket lance to blow off Ballister's arm, later claiming it was an accident. The institution had no use for a one-armed hero, so Ballister became a villain, not to defeat his enemies and win, but to prove a point. Those rules he lived by are his rules, not society's. During a heist at a science lab, Ballister and Nimona are confronted by Sir Goldenloin and the guards. Goldenloin still treats Ballister like a friend, led up to letting him escape, as though this has been a game all along. Meanwhile, Nimona kills the guards and sets off the self-destruct sequence. While it appears that Nimona was caught in the blast, she was actually able to steal the institution's top-secret plans. Back home, Ballister confronts Nimona about her killing the guards. Nimona counters that people won't take him seriously as a villain if he's too afraid to kill. Ballister changes the subject by asking Nimona how she became a shapeshifter, to which she complains, Do I have to do the whole backstory thing? It's kind of a downer. With this warning, she begins. Nimona lived with her family in a village that was regularly attacked by raiders. She wanted to fight back, but she was only six years old. One day, she came upon a witch that had fallen down a hole. To help her get out, the witch turned Nimona into a dragon, and now Nimona could help save her village. But when the villagers saw the dragon, they chased it away. The witch hadn't told Nimona how to change back, and she spent weeks struggling to return to human form. When she did, she ran back home, only to discover that the raiders had attacked again and killed everyone. Ballister picks at the logic of this story, but remains fascinated by Nimona's powers. When he offers to run some tests, though, Nimona gets real angry. Letting that go, they turn to the institution's secret plans. They learn that the institution has, has been stockpiling an outlawed plant called Jade Root, which is only associated with dark magic. The plant is very poisonous and risks contaminating the kingdom's food supply. With this information, Ballister plots to discredit the institution. After leaking the documents about the jade root, they release non-fatal poisoned apples into the food supply. While they wait for the poison to take effect, they decide to rob a bank, this time without Nimona killing anyone. 
but as they escape, Nimona is hit by an arrow, forcing them to lay low while she reheals. And as random people fall ill with no clear cause, paranoia and panic about the jade root grows. The director of the institution is not happy, and orders Goldenloin to kill the sidekick, though he balks at killing a child. Instead, he calls Ballister and asks to meet, where he tells Ballister to get rid of his sidekick so things can go back to normal. But things haven't been normal for Ballister since the joust. When he reminds Goldenloin of this, they begin a fight, which Ballister wins. While Goldenloin is down, Ballister asks, What if I cut off your arm right now? Then you'd see how fast the institution would cast you aside, just like they did me. But I wouldn't, and I'm the villain. What do you suppose that says about you? <laughs> Seeing her boss depressed, Nimona suggests that they go to the science expo. There they meet Dr. Meredith Blitzmeyer. <laughs> Such a great name. <laughs> and her anonymous energy enhancer. Dr. Blitzmeyer has traveled the world and has seen how sorcerers seem to draw energy from an invisible source. Blitzmeyer is trying to apply the same principle to science to draw in an infinite power supply. But the device has a side effect of locking Nimona into her current form, a cat, right when the guards notice them. As a cat, Nimona causes chaos and destruction, allowing them to escape. Later, when she can return to normal, Nimona hulks out in fear and frustration and destroys their kitchen until Ballister reminds her that she is not alone anymore and that he won't let anyone harm her. But after this incident, Nimona changes her hair from pink to purple. Now the institution is serious about removing Blackheart and his sidekick. The director gives Goldenloin new advanced armor and plots how to engage the villains on her own terms. At the royal tournament, people continue to fall ill and, in a panic, the townspeople begin to riot. The institution sends armed guards to impose martial law, but Blackheart interrupts the guards' communication, and the townspeople turn on the guards. Expecting this, Goldenloin arrives to arrest Ballister and takes him to a special cell where they wait for his sidekick to come rescue him. Nimona arrives, and in the ensuing battle, she takes the form of a dragon and is beheaded. And then she gets back up. <laughs> Whereas all of Nimona's previous transformations had been red in color, she is now a black flaming behemoth. She escapes with Blackheart, leaving Goldenloin as the only survivor. After this, Nimona changes her hairstyle, shaving off her side locks and shaping her bangs from curly to a widow's peak. When two people reportedly die from his poisoning, Ballister decides to end the plan and cure everyone else. Nimona pushes him to defeat the institution, seize power, and then cure everyone. But Ballister doesn't care about that kind of power. Instead, he confronts Nimona about hers. Nimona's ability to change mass and come back from the dead are fraud beyond the capabilities of a witch's spell. Ballister begins to realize that Nimona may not be a girl disguised as a monster, but a monster disguised as a girl. Realizing that her boss no longer trusts her, Nimona reminds Ballister how she's helped him and saved his life, transforming into the black beast in her anger. When Ballister reaches for a sword to defend himself, Nimona leaves. Later, Ballister calls Dr. Blitzmeyer to ask if, in her travels, she recalls any stories about a creature that can shift into any form. There is one, but it doesn't quite match up with Nimona's abilities, unless the creature had been modified in a lab. Later still, Ballister is captured while curing the people affected by his poison. A demoted Goldenloin is sent to guard him, and Goldenloin finally admits that the exploding lance at the joust was not an accident. The director had come to him with an offer to become the institution's champion, but only if he proved himself during the tournament. When Ballister unseated him, he used the rocket to gain victory. 
Now, for the first time, Golden Loin says he's sorry. It is reported that Blackheart is in jail and to be executed, so Nimona comes to rescue him and is instead captured. The director wants to study and weaponize Nimona's shape-shifting powers, because a dangerous nation is a powerful nation. However, the director can't really hurt Nimona, but she can hurt Ballister to gain Nimona's cooperation. After taking a sample, they continue to torture Ballister, and Nimona goes dark. The director hadn't really done her research, seeing Nimona only as a resource to be exploited. Any part of Nimona can shapeshift, such as the sample they just took, <laughs> which turns into the Black Beast. The Beast goes on a rampage, destroying the town center, killing the king, and hunting for the director. More people will die unless Ballister and Goldenloin can stop it. Ballister goes to get Dr. Blitzmeyer's anomalous energy enhancer, which can lock the beast into one form and allow it to be hurt. Armed with the apparatus, Goldenloin confronts the beast in the Jade Root Chamber just after it has killed the director. But Nimona's other half is still trapped in the lab, where she remembers another time she was trapped like this. Six-year-old Nimona had saved her village, but her parents claimed she was a changeling that had, been repla that had replaced their real daughter. She was handed over to the institution, where she was experimented on until she escaped. But now Nimona isn't alone anymore, as Ballister has come to rescue her. Nimona explains that being split makes her unstable. The strong part, the beast, will remain while the girl will disintegrate. The beast is giving Goldenloin a good thrashing when they arrive, but because of the apparatus, the girl and the beast cannot join together. Nimona feels betrayed because Ballister revealed her weakness. Nimona and Ballister attack each other, causing a jade root meltdown, which initiates the purge protocol. While the girl remains behind with the beast, Ballister rescues Goldenloin and appears triumphant to the townspeople, declaring, yes, it is over. As the kingdom mourns and rebuilds, Ballister waits for Goldenloin to wake up from his injuries. A doctor chides Ballister to worry more about his own injuries when Dr. Blitzmeyer comes to visit. Then the doctor returns, only to claim that she had just come off break, and discover on the chart a drawing of a shark. <laughs> Ballister runs out to see Nimona wave goodbye as Sir Goldenloin wakes up. Epilogue. Over images of the kingdom rebuilding, Blitzmeyer and Ballister opening a lab together, and Ballister helping Goldenloin in his recovery, Ballister's voiceover reads, I don't know where Nimona is now. I haven't seen her since. At least, I don't think I have. I suppose I wouldn't know. I don't know if I'll ever see her again. It's probably for the best. Of course, I still wonder about every stranger who gives me a knowing look, about every cat who watches me too closely. I can only hope I re reached her in some small way. I can only hope that if she does come back, she'll know me for who I am, a friend. Aww. Good summary. Nice job. Todd, are you going to worry about every stranger that gives you a knowing look and every cat that looks at you too long? <laughs> wonder if they're a shapeshifter. No, see, this is... <laughs> If we, if we had to worry about every cat that looked at us too long. <laughs> I worry about cats just in general. I'm not a big fan. I'm more of a dog person myself. There's something about the tone of this that even though, I mean, it's, as we pointed out, she's pretty violent. and <laughs> She's murderous at various points. Yeah. And before we really have the backstory to know why that it she's so... It doesn't feel terribly sinister. No. And at the end, I don't... It's not like the end of the Weeping yeah. Angels episode of the... Doctor Who, yeah, where they say, you know, all around you there are these statues, and then you feel terrified, or 
or the on our Halloween episode when you talked about water, the water whatever thing, and then we La were Llorona. like, yes, La Llorona, and now we're all terrified to go um, drink water or go to the bathroom or something because La Llorona is going to come out of the toilet and get us. <laughs> There's nothing in this that makes me feel, like, queasy or scared. Uh, As you said, she's not sinister. When she wants to bring more chaos, death, and destruction, it's more like a child lashing out at the world. And she even draws on the map when he's like, here's our plan. And it's it's this sort of, like, stick figures on (laughs) basic, like, here's the building and we'll go to the top and then go down. And then she just, like, colors in fire around (laughs) it and puts blood on all the people and... And paints herself in as a dragon. And so it's it feels uh, playful. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that doesn't scare me. And I think a huge part of that is... It doesn't the... scare me. I'm not scared of Nimona. <laughs> is the art. Um, so Stevenson's art is unique. It's like there, there's simple lines to it. I'm not saying that the art is simple or basic. Like clearly she went to school for this and she right. is a functioning professional artist. Um, so uh, I don't mean to say that this is like childlike, but there is an innocence to the art that it makes it uh, like, I definitely felt the odd disconnect when Nimona went after the guards and you're like, Oh, she's killing the guards. Yes. <laughs> and it was still this um, kind of uh, beautiful simplicity in the drawing. Playfulness to it. Yeah. It's, um, similar to and yet vastly different uh, from the scene that we talked about when we talked about Guardians of the Galaxy and I don't remember if that ever posted or it was a quick cast so most of our listeners will not first and yeah it was a quick cast okay so anyway uh, there's a discussion coming up about Guardians of the Galaxy but in in the new Guardians of the Galaxy film there's a scene that also feels kind of playful but is horrifying horrifyingly (laughs) violent and and the, so, like I say, like there's something similar to that, but also it just feels so different. Probably because the medium is really different. Mm-hmm. And when you're reading, when you're reading this graphic novel with these, I, I don't think childlike is the wrong no, word. Yeah, but it's hard to describe. We'll have some samples of the art or links to where the art can be seen. And again, you can go Google the word Nimona, N I M O N A, and you'll find this art right away. Um, and the art, she's pretty consistent. This is her art style in her new series, Lumberjanes, mm-hmm. yeah. as well. But childlike can denote... Childlike like, in the way that Picasso was childlike, yeah, right? right? <laughs> like that, that can denote like um, a lack of skill. No. And in no way is there a lack of skill in no, this. No, not at all. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's certainly a choice. And like you said, it's consistent. But, but it's also, uh, I mean, I would think that if she was here, she would say, yeah, like, I'm not trying to be... Velasquez or photorealistic at all, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I, it it contributes to the tone that that makes it this kind of strange thing that, on the one hand, feels sort of innocent and fun, and on the other hand, is dealing with some pretty big issues. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's why people probably have latched onto it. Yeah, said that it's really great. I agree with that. Let's talk about some of those issues that we can find in the story. <laughs> And then we'll circle back and talk about Nimona herself, I guess, uh, for the latter part of the discussion. So what are some of those themes that this this uh, children's <laughs> webcomic, <laughs> you know, award-winning children's book has is really grappling with? I think one that I find personally very fascinating is uh, it's kind of debate about the nature of good and evil. Uh, as mentioned earlier, this has been described as subversive. And I think one of the things it subverts is a trope of fantasy which often deals with absolutes of good and evil. You have this ultimate evil that has to be destroyed, and the people who go after it, while flawed, are 
basically good. Mm. Uh, and here it's more dis- uh, building on the ideas that how we decide what is good and evil is society and societal institutions more than any uh, idea that there's uh, an absolute good and evil. Would you say also... Uh, so to, to say that the, there, is a, there is an element of good and evil that's a societal construct, mm-hmm. but I think when we read this, we get the sense that that the construct is wrong. Yes. Which implies that there is an absolute good and evil or is it, and that or, society or, is or it's implying if you want to go sorry I'm blanking on the philosophical term <laughs> post something it's all post something yeah postmodernism is the only yeah. one I know of that well, post structuralism yeah but the idea that there is no core truth that there's no absolutes and so by pointing out that this is a societal construct it's saying no all these things are constructs that right. we that we agree on and there are no absolutes. So that's the, you can argue for the inverse of that as well. Right. What I'm saying is that I don't, I don't buy it. Right. Well, let's, <laughs> well let's, also because through the story, we start to realize, uh, Ballester is not the bad guy. Like he has he's not. rules. He's good. He has a moral code. And, and, he, and he's and a victim. He's a victim and he's taking out the, uh, the, the institutes that wronged him, but that he also see that, like we learned in the story is wronging everyone. Yeah. If you take these three characters, uh, Ambrosius and Ballester and Nimona, and you wrote up a brief description of each and what they do in the, throughout the book, and you gave that to a hundred people and said, tell me who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. I mean, who is acting morally positive and who is acting morally negative, I think you would probably find pretty strong consistency among people's opinions that Ballester, by and large, is doing what we would consider right. I don't know. He goes rob bank. <laughs> he's, uh, he's talking about taking down a government through terrorist acts. But, but, but he, a lot of stories have that, and they're the heroes. Right. That is not yeah. an uncommon trope to I'm say. It, but like, but, but if the, you were the, to... the difference here is that the common citizenry don't know everything is, that's going on. That's to say, like, Robin Hood is a bad guy because he steals things. And I think, by and large, most people understand that the story of Robin Hood is not about a bad guy. It's about a guy who does some uh, questionable things in pursuit of, uh, ultimately, something that is more noble than yeah. like the motivation is a key part of it he's not robbing for selfishness though what is what is the motivation of robbing the bank in this like the plot reason i can't remember yeah, he's not robbing the bank to give yeah, to the he's, poor he's not giving to the poor no though that's part of his distraction strategy <laughs> <laughs> no and i'm not i'm not saying that like every decision that he makes so you talked about fantasy if the fantasy trope says there's this ultimate evil that must be destroyed and then we get a band of people who, a fellowship, if you will. A fellowship, if you will. Maybe some of whom are uh, conflicted or... Susceptible to temptation. Yeah, complicated. But in the end, this thing that they're moving towards is this ultimately good thing. I just, as I read Nimona, I don't get the feeling like, oh, my whole world has been completely turned upside down and I don't know who's good and I don't know who's bad because it's all a social construct. I just think this society is messed up but Ballester is a good guy who does some bad things, 
And but in the end, like I feel like his heart is good, and I feel like I don't feel uncomfortable saying I think his heart is good. Is part of that because of how the narrative is built that we're introduced to Ballester as a protagonist early on and follow his story? I don't know that it is not, in not my all mind. Of it. But is a part of it because of that? I don't know that it is in my mind because when we're first introduced to him, we're told supervillain. Like, this is a supervillain and... And he's, he's named Blackheart. He's got the mechanical arm. Yes. Like, he's, he's got he has, all the tropes. He has the goatee. The cape, <laughs> the goatee and the cape. He has all our tropes that signify in fantasy storytelling villain. He's <laughs> absolutely coded villain from the beginning. And it's not until they're on the they're on their secret mission and Nimona starts killing people and he's like, Whoa <laughs> We don't do that kind of stuff and she's like, Wait, but you're a villain and he says, Yeah, but I've got rules, right? <laughs> and, and and at that moment is when I think he codes himself as I'm a good guy. I yes, I do some bad things, but I'm a good guy and I have a, I have a code that I live by. And it may not be everybody else's code, but it's my code and well everyone who is the hero of their own story yeah but we say that but in fantasy like you said there's often the straight up bad guy and but how we, how often are we getting the story told from their point of view yeah like, but how I would mean, lord of the rings be if we have been had, have been told from the point of view of sauron i'm guessing it would not have come across as noble <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to, yeah, Sean's attitude is, I'm trying to be peace and order to the yeah. world by yeah, force. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm reading right now, um, Lords of the Sith. It's a Star Wars novel from mm. the new canon. And it's, in, it's told basically from, uh, Darth Vader and, um, Palpatine's. Are they on a buddy adventure? They actually are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have to read this now. <laughs> uh, but the opening scene of the novel is Vader putting on his armor inside of his little box and the thoughts that are going through his head. And it's all from his point of view saying, you know, I want order and uh, and peace and this is the way to do it. But it's also like he's so full of anger that there's uh, there's no way for a rational, typical person to read that and think... Man, that Darth Vader, he's a really good guy. He's just misunderstood. He's just misunderstood. Like, you you can still see the story from his point of view without adopting his point of view. If that makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I, I like this I, story. Yeah, I, I, I'm just pushing against you to build up your own argument so that you have to think through <laughs> it. So, because, like, the with the example of Darth Vader, I can say, well... He's a pre-established villain. When we start, we already know he's but the again, bad well, guy. Well, we're well, go, we're book, going though, with preconceptions. And in this book, we're given the preconception right from the beginning. That yeah, but it's not as strong as Darth Vader, who's this big villain. But I think, I mean, in, uh, in culture, I don't know why Darth Vader always seems to like weave his way into our conversations <laughs> here. But I would, I would argue that we have an even stronger preconception uh, against Darth Vader. Well, I would say we have. I would say we have a uh, more of a how do I want to say this? I feel more inclined to give Darth Vader a pass, only seeing the first three films, than I do after seeing the prequel films. Right? Yes, because the prequels don't do enough to make him sympathetic or make it seem like a fall from grace. And they could but, have done that, right? But it's like, where was the grace? Like once we reach <laughs> teenage Anakin, it's like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> no wonder he's the you know galactic bad guy. Yeah. But we were always told at the prequels he had this noble history. Right. You don't really feel the nobility. All right. Well, speaking of angsty teenagers, let's perhaps turn to Nimona. <laughs> to Nimona. Well, because we can build on this. Like, did she have a fall from grace? She wanted to help protect her village. Right. So, like, she had good intentions. 
but then was tortured and turned against society. And now she wants death, destruction, and chaos. Right. So the, what's the so, question? So did she have a fall for grace? And like, was there, she on a heroic path there, therefore and became is, a villain? Therefore, is she have some uh, possible redemption? That we're still looking for that possibility at the end. But is it possible? <laughs> and therefore, does that make her sympathetic? Uh, or has she achieved any redemption in our eyes as readers? Yeah. Is it the, is are those the same things? Do is it the same thing for us to say? Is she a sympathetic character as it is for us to say? Is there hope for redemption? Yeah. Is she sympathetic? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you like her from the get go, and you understand her more as you get all the backstory. Yeah. Uh, which only increases how much like sympathy we're willing to to give to her. Yeah. But like we said, it's something about the tone of this art and the way the story is told. Even as she's killing the guards and just kind of like eye popping, you're like, whoa, Nimona. Right. Uh, you still like don't view her as a monster. Right. This it's now talking a point of view. If you got this from the point of view of the guy that gets his throat ripped out by the, <laughs> like the Hellcat, then. Or his family. Or his family, then I think our conversation about Nimona is different. Yes. So <laughs> it is yeah, complicated. So I think when we talk about character, part of it that we have to bear in mind is what is the point of view we're being yeah. told the story from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I mean. So many shows, we've all seen it, where like you have a story and then suddenly a character steps in and gives their backstory or their version of what happened and everything, you like you, your sympathies shift. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I don't think we ever lost sympathy for Nimona, even when she was acting chaotically and violently. She's still fun. <laughs> we still like. Well, I think she's fun, and I think that you you read that as a reader as um, pain, and you feel sympathetic. Like right, yeah. you you think you poor tortured soul. It's the line at the end of Phantom of the Opera when she says, "Pitiful creature of darkness, something, something, something." <laughs> right? Like that's how we so, feel. That, that sounds right. I think that was an accurate. <laughs> Accurate restatement of that. What kind of life have you lived? God give me courage to let you know you are not alone or something like that. I, it, mm. it rhymes. Can you sing thing. it for me? That would probably <laughs> help prompt the words, Todd. Well, we talked the other day about doing a, an entirely musical version of the podcast, which would be fantastic. But tonight's not that night. But it's this idea of seeing something that is that is horrible and broken. And rather than saying, like, you're a terrible monster, it's saying, man, what happened to you that makes you act this way? So my my other question then is, what is the true Nimona underneath? Because at the end, we get this break where we have the monster and we have the small child. And we know she's a shapeshifter. Was she, like, really only, like, six years old when she came and offered to be the sidekick, but had transformed herself into an adolescent? Or is she really the adolescent? And when the break happened, we separated out her innocent child and the monster. Because I could just read it both ways. Because inside of every teenager, there is an innocent child and a crazy, raging monster. Well, I don't have any teenagers yet, so I don't know <laughs> of what you speak. <laughs> I have a seven-year-old that was a raging monster today. <laughs> well, this goes to an idea you've, that Todd has discussed a lot of the Jungian shadow self. That the black beast that comes out is her shadow self. Yeah, it like is. That she, or uh, Wizard of Mercy, again, yeah. the releasing. Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so to say, like, which is the true one, well... They're both. They're just different aspects of her, and it's only when they're together that she is the true Nimona. So you would say that when those two are together, she's the teenage Nimona with the pink mm-hmm. shaved head and the that, bangs. That's like she really is a teenager. Yeah, but that's her as a balanced. <laughs> her as a as an individualized, individualized, enlightened uh, being is maybe still in need of a little balance. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's still a teenager, so let's not push enlightened yet. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's... I, th- I think it's an interesting question of, like, who is she? And it, is that question ultimately knowable? Because, I mean, sometimes we ask a question about someone's identity and the answer may or may be clear. But in this case, I'm not sure that it's it's a knowable thing. Yeah, because you I've, can kind of poke at it from different angles, and then ultimately you say, "I don't really know who she is." And that works for a shapeshifter. Right? Yes, I, I think that's deliberate. That's not like a plot hole or a, you know a, a lack of character development. It's true to the character of your protagonist is gonna be a shapeshifter. There should be something slippery that's hard for us to grasp and and really nail down who this character is. And I mean, ultimately, not knowable. I mean, if we were inside of the story we could have a birth certificate that says <laughs> Nimona was born either six yeah. years ago or, or 16 years or ago. Or the village was destroyed X number of years right. ago. Right. Uh, but because we're not, <laughs> because we're not there and we don't have the birth certificate or the newspaper article, then we just have to say, I, I don't really know. I and like this idea of the shadow separating from the innocent yeah. self. Yeah, I love both versions of this. They both I work. I do too. And having the ambiguity is fine. <laughs> So what do you guys make of this um, this world that is like fantasy, but then they're on computers and they have the lance, but then the lance is a lance rocket? And so, to, to establish that this is fantasy, we're talking kind of high fantasy. This is a kingdom, castles. You have knights in armor, uh, dragons. Don't weird, like, fighting with swords. Don't weird people you're, you're out. Fi- yeah, they know have, dragons are there. You have jousting tournaments, but they also have television and video calls. And and they the hospital keep, looks like a real yeah, hospital, regular hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah they order pizza. <laughs> Blackheart has a mechanical arm. Yeah, and uh, well, and the what's the name of the lab? The institute for institution of law enforcement. But they just call it the institute for most of oh, it. Oh, so I was uh, going to no, ask. The institution. The institution yeah. is very like sci-fi, government conspiracy, yeah. yes. tech-based. I have a question. Uh, at the very beginning, she says, I'm your sidekick. And he says, did the agency send you? So is there an agency it's of like a temp villains? Agency. I think it was like a temp yeah, agency. Yeah, it's never brought up again. <laughs> we don't know if it's uh, an agency for villainy that sends out sidekicks or mercenaries. Uh, like, you, you need a crew for a job? Well, we'll, here's, we'll help you hire a crew. <laughs> Um, there, it's never brought up again. And as far as we know, she was lying. She says, the agency sent me. And he kind of plays along with it uh, for a minute to see where she's going with this. But there seems to be but, an understanding between them that there yeah. is a thing called the agency. Yeah, so... the uh, again, That could potentially send a, a sidekick. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and this also may have to do with the development of web comics, where you're usually posting a page at a time instead of trying to fi- you know figure out a 22-page issue or a whole arc. And yeah, Stevenson knew where she was going to end from the beginning, but not how she was going to get there. So maybe sure. she had an idea of for using the agency at some point, but didn't have space for it. And this ended. And this is yeah, the, this is this the, is the entire thing. And she's not. She, she's not, she's no moved plans. on to other work. Yeah. No except she did before. help write the adaptation for the anime film, at least okay. a draft of it. Okay. So, but what do you make of this world? This this combination of science and fantasy. Does that work for you? Do you like it? I love it. I love yeah. genre mashes. Well, <laughs> I'm all I, about let's let's have the crazy like tropes of genres that we know and just throw them in a blender. And I think that's the key is you just throw them in and don't try and explain it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. If she had spent like four chapters of backstory explaining how science and magic both developed, I would have been like, come on. Yeah. The whole, <laughs> what's the history of the kingdom that led him up to this point? No. It's like, we have science, we have magic, go with it. <laughs> 
It's um. I mean, you're talking about Jung and the like, the shadow and the the conscious, and there's there is a sort of division between science, and he really likes science, uh, Blackheart. I mean, mm-hmm. and and magic, and so I think there's there's some kind of a dichotomy there that's interesting. I don't know how like fully it's developed or mm-hmm. uh, over the course of the story, but but well, they, they do. Um, kind of butt up against each other and it's interesting that science fiction and fantasy seem like uh they would be genres that are diametrically opposed but they're always grouped together right yeah like the in the bookstore it's the science fiction fantasy section like <laughs> yeah that, they're so interrelated they can't be separated despite the fact that they are pretty different and like i said almost diametrically and opposed. I, I think it's not uncommon to find authors who jump between the two mm-hmm. yeah uh, like they're working and they, they end up being called genre and there's often like a derogatory tone of like oh they write genre genre, <laughs> genre work <laughs> um but but it's really i like off the top of my head i could probably list a half dozen authors without even trying who are famous for publishing one but have also published the other sure um i just uh, the the part where it stood out to me the most was when he's talking with the the scientist lady mm-hmm. what's her name Blitzmeyer. 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 And she says, I mean, she's a scientist and she wears a lab coat, so we know she's a scientist. And she has goggles. <laughs> and she has goggles. And we uh, talk about markers of, I know. of your role. <laughs> <laughs> she wears goggles and a lab coat, but she says, I went uh, across the borders of the wherever into the land where everything's about magic. And then I sort of brought this thing back. And so it's inside of her little story is encapsulated like the this universe much bigger world yeah. than what we get here yeah and if we were going to say like if uh stevenson ever like wanted to revisit this i would want to know that story <laughs> that's Meyer's quest yeah. to get sci- like to scientifically capture magic but then you also have the testing on mm-hmm. nimona the scientific testing that created this crazy magical rage monster so, I think that's what it's called, the crazy magical rage monster. <laughs> shape-shifting rage monster. <laughs> yes. Hero of men. <laughs> <laughs> what else? I just wanted to do, I mean, I, we probably, are there any other, like, heady topics about character? or? We haven't talked to... about Golden Loin yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, I don't know if I can talk about him with a straight face. You can't say that <laughs> chuckling. What do you want to say about him? Well, he does have an arc. Like, all three of our main characters have arcs that mm-hmm. move them to a different place from where they are at the beginning and allow us to view them differently than where they are at the beginning, which not every story successfully manages that feat mm-hmm. <laughs> with even one character, much less three. Yeah. So Golden Loin, uh, we, like, we're, we know we're from the villain's point of view initially, and he's kind of set up as, like, oh, he's the, the classic golden boy hero. Literally. He is golden armor. <laughs> yes. Um, and yes, he, the art gives all those, you know, markers of the classic iconic noble hero. And as we, we break this down and we start to, to, um, tear apart these tropes, he doesn't become the villain though. It's not like he was knowingly right. working for this evil corporation and he was a hypocrite all along. It's that he was, uh, he, he, he thought he was doing a good thing. Uh, and we see that he still doesn't really believe Blackheart is a full villain in the way that they, when they fight, it is almost playful and game-like. Mm-hmm. Like, like this is, we're going through the motions this of is, what we always this do. This is 60s Batman, where they're all play-acting, fighting, right. and the villain will always come back, escape and come back again. Yeah. He's the one of everyone who works for the institution that starts to question things. Is like His eyes are open more and more to what's actually going on. Like He still has his moral core centered enough that he's like, 
uh, guys. Yeah. Is, he... <laughs> is this what we're supposed to be well, doing? We're, we're the good guys, right? He, he's interesting because he's, he's the kind of character who made one big mistake. He used that rocket lance right. dangerous best friend. And ever since he said, he's kind of the attitude of, I have to be more noble than everyone else because I made this mistake. That's how I'm going to repent of this mm-hmm. is I have to be more noble. He's when I talked earlier about this idea of societal constructs of good and evil, mm-hmm. he's the one who probably goes through the most change through that because he thinks the Institute's good uh, until they start telling him to do things that go against his moral code. Sure. And that's when he starts questioning and starts realizing, Oh, these people I work for aren't as noble as I am. <laughs> And and also that, eventually that, eventually like, realizing like oh I'm and that also brings him to question himself saying oh maybe I'm not as noble as I thought I was because yeah I did do this terrible thing in the past and doing noble deeds doesn't repent for that and and like they make it's interesting how strong a point it is when he apologizes it's like oh that that helped a lot well that's <laughs> when also, you apologize also yeah, that Blackheart says. That's the first time you've apologized to right. me. Yeah, yeah, like it, it is a really big moment. Um, we we've mentioned like he starts to realize what's actually happening. Is he naive up to that point? Like, yes. does he come off as like one of those innocently naive, like Boy Scoutish, like la di da? I'm just gonna go do do the right thing, and I'm not never gonna question anything. Or is this like Alias, where you're w- working, and then all of a sudden you go, "Oh my gosh, I think I'm working for the bad guys." <laughs> Spoiler I, for I the think... wonderful decades-plus-back show, Alias. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it definitely at first... Well, for me, he is naive at first. Um, that he's going along and treating this rivalry with Ballister as still a game that they're playing. That, oh, you know, we were best friends, now we're just doing different roles now, but we're still playing along with each other. And until Nimona comes up and disrupts that paradigm that they had. Right. Uh, when she starts killing guards, it's just like... And that's where the director starts saying, no, we're not playing the same game anymore. And he wants, at first he wants it to go back to how it was. He says, mm-hmm. get rid of your sidekick, we'll just go back to how things were. And it takes him a while to realize, no, I really messed up in the past and need to pay for that. I need to apologize. And atone. For, and atone for that. And just doing good deeds isn't doing that. I like you said, like when, when the rules of the game change because of Nimona, it's when he really has to ask himself... Like, what is my role? Yeah. <laughs> what am I doing? If things had continued on in the status quo, I think he would have been content to have the occasional, you know, incursion by Blackheart that he tries to repel, and they have witty banter as they do it, and nothing ever really changes between the institution and Blackheart. It kind of reminds me of our conversation of um, Sonny and the Apostle, mm-hmm. where you have this one huge <laughs> mistake, and how are you going to respond to that? And... In the case of the Apostle, he just sort of ignores that it ever happened. In this case, I think the reaction is different. Neither of them can ignore what what has happened, and Ambrosius can't just run away. Mm-hmm. Um, and they maintain a relationship with each other, although it's certainly different. There's um, at least it's at least hinted that their friendship is more than right. friendship. Yeah, it can be read that way. Yes. It, it, we're never explicitly shown anything beyond a homosocial relationship between the two, sure. but it could be read as a romantic homosexual relationship. Yeah. So neither of them wants to run away from this relationship. I think they still feel drawn to each other, but but they've found some kind of stasis. Uh, and and then to think about Nimona as an agent of change mm-hmm. and talk about like being an agent, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, the, her agency is just all over this. And when she arrives, 
everything changes. Yeah. And it's and going back to my idea of the social construct, it's implied that the institution set up Blackheart to become the villain, and they need a villain in order for Gold. Golden Loin to be a hero. Right. Well, and then, the, yes, they can continue doing all their testing and all their, yeah. their building up of because power because it's Society defense. has yeah. this great hero and right. to distract them from Right, and, and there's this on. villain that we need to fear so that we can continue hoarding all the wealth and yeah. power uh, to protect everyone. It's Red Sox and the Yankees. You have to have them both, right? <laughs> but who's the hero and who's the villain? <laughs> well, we all know that the Red Sox are the hero. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. No, no, no. I am sorry. My my five year old has become obsessed with the Yankees, so I can't allow that to stand. <laughs> and you know what? He didn't choose a cursed team that will never win a championship. So that's true. My grandpa cheered for the Red Sox, so I I feel like I have to I have to be loyal. My father's from Jersey and was a Yankee fan, so Although I don't, I just could not care less. Oh, I, if I was going to choose a sport for my son to embrace, that I was going to engage with him as a good father, it would not have been baseball. No. <laughs> but uh, bless all their hearts. No, but uh, but I think that there is something to this idea of having a rival, and that you, if it ever gets too lopsided, like uh, BYU and Utah in football right now, it's like, come on, just win a game, because you're reaching a point where... A rivalry no longer feels like a rivalry, and the universe feels totally out of balance. Mm-hmm. And it it should feel... Uh, and this is why when they fight each other, you know neither of them is going to kill the other, certainly. Yeah. And Ambrosius is just like, I'm just going to open the door and let you go. Yeah. The, because... On their first battle at the science lab, he literally says... You should leave before the rest of the gu- like after the self destruct set. He's like, you should go before more guards come, right? Or we blow up. <laughs> or, well, yeah. I think it was but, after they had yeah. run out of the building. Yeah. It's this idea again of balance. It's yin yeah. and yang, and you have to have both because if you don't, then it gets messed up. I just I think that balance is really important in storytelling, as I also think balance is important in life. <laughs> uh, but. Um, whether they're in a social relationship or a romantic relationship or a hero-villain kind of antagonistic relationship, it works better uh, for the story, certainly, when they're balanced. And this is why Ambrosius just lets Blackheart go. <laughs> like, he doesn't want to kill him because he knows that he'll lose something important, uh, not just in a not just in a friend or a lover, but in in this world that they've created. Yeah. I mean, that would be the end of something that's to him really important. But it's interesting that that status quo in a way has plateaued and you need this agent of chaos to come in and disrupt the status quo for them to progress and change. Sure. Well, I think, uh, and, and so sometimes balance, it it can become kind of a damning influence as in like stopping a progression. Like if you're, yeah. if you're too balanced and, and now if it's too chaotic, everything goes badly. So like, like you need a balance in how much chaos and, and routine there, there is as well. But for this story, this is a story about this agent of chaos disrupting the status quo. That was kind of comfortable for everyone. Depends on what your goal is, right? I mean, and maybe what point in life you're at, mm-hmm. but if, if the balance works, and everybody's happy and content, mm-hmm. then who are we to say that there's something terribly wrong about that and we need some agent of chaos to come in and blow everything up? I'm I'm not saying that that's where they're yeah. at, but I think j- blowing up the status quo just because... Just because, yeah, like to, disruption for the sake of disruption, I think in storytelling and in life isn't the right, <laughs> the, the right course, but right. also at the same time, storytelling sometimes needs to be shaken up. Well, and I, I think that 
a relationship of I'm a hero and you're a villain. We're going to fight, 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 and then I'm going to let you go. I don't think it's probably nearly as satisfying a relationship as what they would hope to have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think they yeah. could. I think they can hope for better yeah. than what they have. And if Nimona coming in and blowing up their status quo will allow them to progress towards what what it is that they want, then, then certainly. Uh, I think the very excellent point of that drives towards what makes this story appealing. Uh, it's not just disrupting the status quo. It's really that pairing of Nimona and Blackheart. You have someone who has been stuck in a rut of the status quo and needs change in Blackheart. He does want to change, but he doesn't know what he needs to do to change. And she comes in as this agent of chaos, disrupts everything, and he then gets to say, all right, I like what you're doing here, but not here. Uh, this change is good, this change is bad. And he becomes and, a hero because of it. Yeah, and so... Well, and because the institution was, was revealed, <laughs> revealed to be evil, right. and therefore all the societal constructs fell apart. <laughs> and so then what becomes of Nimona? I mean, she comes in and and serves this really important purpose in the story of disrupting status quo and allowing these two men who have been stuck to m- move in the direction that they want to go, and then she sort of disappears. And for me, the la- the greatest lingering question at the end of this is what what to make of her like, what's her status now? I think whether she wanted to or not, she helped remake society. And this goes into classic American myths, uh, back to the Western, where you have uh, the gunman come in using a great deal of violence to save the town. But now that it's saved, he doesn't belong anymore. And here we're just having an invert, uh, not an inversion, a subversion of that, where it's the villain has come in, saved the town. Uh, but now that agent of chaos can't, Remain because even though the villain does, yeah, yeah the status quo has changed, and she can't be part of that anymore. It, so she she has to be the Western gunman who's walking off into the sunset now. It, it really is, yeah. and, and again, talking about um, subverting yeah. convention, where the gunman's supposed to be order, she's chaos, and she came in and fixed everything. Yeah, well, it's so close. It's so mm-hmm. close to the to the myth of the gunman who comes in and uses extreme violence in the name of good. She comes in and uses extreme violence in the name of evil. I mean, she's she's very clear about what she wants. But unintentionally, her acts are bringing about good. Uh, And as you said, with the subversion, it's in the Western, it's usually the town is good and needs to be protected. Mm -hmm. Here, the town, or at least the leadership of the kingdom, is evil and needs to be chased out. And so, again, it's that close path. It's following that pattern. But subverting but, those but, elements. I mean, even like talking about westerns, we often have the like the the um, the Magnificent Seven or the Three Amigos version of it, where like the town knows everyone. There's these bad guys, and they want someone to come overthrow it. They think these are the good guys. So there's just another level of <laughs> yeah. subversion that happens, where it's not like the town people are crying yeah. out for a hero to come save them. Uh, it's they view this as like a monster that is going to hurt them, but actually reveals this hypocrisy. I enjoyed this story the first time, and now they're so much more clever after this discussion. <laughs> so is Nimona a good guy or a bad guy? She's, mm. she's chaos, wherever that falls. You can have chaotic good. Not even good. Cha- chaotic good, just chaotic neutral. Yeah, and so like her actions could become well, chaotic say, good, I mean, it could become chaotic evil. But well, no, like the results of her actions, I think, are end up good in this instance. But her motivation like it's, is evil. Is evil, yeah. yeah. She's, she's chaotic evil. Yeah. The results of her actions yes. are chaotic good. So what what do we make of that? Like, what do you do with that? You is she a failure? 
Because she didn't... Well, she killed a lot of the people she wanted to kill. <laughs> That's true. She killed the king. Well, and she killed the... Like, a lot of her anger, and, like, when she starts killing people, it's not like she's rampaging across the, you know, the, the village. Innocence. Right. Yeah. It is. She's targeting the institution that tortured her. We yeah. don't know that yet. But, like, when she's killing the guards, she views the guards as bad guys because they tortured her. Right. So, in that instance, is it chaotic good? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's a shape-shifty story. All no, around, shifty, wobbly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the final thing I want to say, because we're never going to resolve that question <laughs> about what to make of Nimona. I don't think. I just want to give one final shout out before we wrap up to uh, Noelle Stevenson and the way that she uses the comic book forum to like do a joke, particularly. Um, the the In the first chapter, when she says, I'm a shark, which is now one of my favorite so lines, uh, you have this, this uh, adolescent girl and Blackheart is kind of kicking her out and saying, "No, you can't. You can't be my villain. Hey, you're just a kid. I don't want a kid following me around all day." And she, in one panel, we see the kid following Blackheart and saying, "I'm not a kid." And then the next panel is out of nowhere the shark jumping up at Blackheart and yelling, "I'm a shark!" <laughs> and then the next panel, like, like it's confusing as a reader. Like I remember, like, what is what just happened here? Uh, and then the next panel is, "Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, I'm a shapeshifter." <laughs> the other part of that next panel is the camera pulls back and you see. Her as a shark on two legs. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and with um, arms. But that's one of those comedic beats that you can do, a skilled combo creator can really do using the panel and the panel structure to time jokes in a way that just don't, don't work as well. Like, you got to do it differently in other mediums to make that joke land. And she does it expertly for comic books. Do you think there's any connection between this and Moana? Because we have shark and shark. I have not yet watched Moana. Oh, man, you're killing me. <laughs> so I will have you recuse seen Moana? myself. Yes. Okay. This is like the, the whole like, shark head joke. And it looks oh, yeah. almost exactly the okay. same here. Yeah, it just took me a moment to remember what scene you were talking about. I just think it's it's, uh, it's uh, an extraordinary coincidence that yes. we have two stories about shapeshifters, <laughs> and the big funny reveal is a shark. But it makes sense in Moana because it's Polynesian Islands, Pacific. Right. So having a shark show up there makes sense. Here's Here, the land, shock land-based of... kingdom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just a shark pops up. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's awesome. Yeah, I, I had a lot of fun reading this and talking about it. I really enjoyed our discussion. This is one where I think we we collectively pulled out some really interesting topics by the end where we're going in. I'm like, I, I like this story. I, I fully enjoy this story. I didn't know where our discussion was going to go. And I, I was really intrigued with where we went. Okay. That wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us for show notes and links to all of the other great dueling genre shows. Go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. It really helps us out. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 125 when we discussed the graphic novel American Born Chinese, or number 46 where we talked about Gunner Krig Court. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We are also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. John, is there anywhere people can reach you? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) He'll look at the comments under this post. I have a very small (laughs) online presence. Well, you comment a lot on the Facebook page. Occasionally. Occasionally. Uh, We have great conversations there on Facebook with all of our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Bye.
Are I was we okay? sneeze, so I was trying to get away from the mic. <laughs> then it didn't come once it, I stood it, up. It picks up far enough away. I'm not, I was going to go hide in the corner, Andrew. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> sneeze into a Because that's not distracting at all. <laughs> so, 